This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 10th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The last major American tax reform was 1986. Rates were cut, deductions eliminated. And as importantly as any element of policy contained in that bill, it was remarkably popular. For tax reform today, Cato Vice President John Samples discusses the 86 reform and what it has to offer today's debate. The 1986 tax reform, which uh, was brought about uh, by bipartisan efforts. It had started with uh, Bill Bradley and uh, the Demo- Democratic leadership. Ronald Reagan got on board. Um, there was some resistance within his administration to it, uh, including our former chairman, Bill Niskanen, wasn't all that uh, excited about it at the time. But ultimately, uh, it uh, did pass, and the crucial Republican was Bob Packwood who was uh, on the Senate side and was expected to actually oppose it. But it did happen. It wasn't supposed to happen. Right now, uh, the current one is not supposed to happen. So it's possible that it could happen. 1986 tax reform was one of the most extraordinary things I think uh, that has happened in my lifetime in some ways in terms of getting the system to uh, work. What were the keys to uh, making that tax reform work? I think in terms of getting it through, the there was uh, – Reagan was very important. The fact that Reagan was willing to endorse it, uh, even in the sixth year of his presidential – his two presidential terms, uh, he – and that he stayed behind it and nursed it through to the end. Presidential leadership was important. Um, having bipartisanship to it was good. I mean, I think that was part of the Republican – some Republican doubts about it was that there would be – there was $125 million in uh, taxes that were moved around. So there were in some sense um, increases in some ways, mostly for corporations. On the other hand, there was a lower tax rate that uh, President Reagan got for it. but. As I said, Bob Packwood, uh, the head of the Senate Finance Committee at the time, was crucial because he changed his mind during the process. He was initially against it uh, and he changed his mind and decided to be for it. And when he did, it really uh, changed the bargaining really quickly. The, all the forces that were against it were caught out. They, didn't, they thought that uh, things were going pretty well, that nothing was going to change. And, back, and Packwood turning on a dime really shook everything up and uh, uh, caused a general panic, I think, too. But too late. It was, a, it was a done deal. What was the policy case for the tax reform and what were the nuts and bolts of it and sort of what parallels could you draw between then and potentially now? The, it's a number of ways of looking at it. Um, I mean, for the Democrats, for people like Bill Bradley, there was a distributional question. They thought that most of the tax breaks uh, went to the upper parts of the wealth and income distribution. Uh, and so they – for them, it was uh, a kind of equity issue. I believe for libertarians, there's actually an important issue which – and it's odd – an odd one because it actually I think is not best thought of as a tax matter in the following sense. You have to realize that all of these loopholes uh, or tax preferences more formally in the tax code are really what Congress thinks they're doing with these is managing the economy. 
They think they're increasing uh, the housing supply or, or supporting the housing industry. Uh, or they think they're doing other things by giving specific breaks. Also, uh, just investment in general, they think, uh, is uh, very important. So they see these uh, tax preferences really as a form of managing the economy. And as libertarians or classical liberals, uh, we believe that those kinds of management are not needed and likely to be counterproductive. There's also the public choice argument that goes closely with that, which is that uh, most of these preferences are, the, are a result of offering highly concentrated benefits to highly organized uh, industries or groups of individuals, uh, whereas the cost or, of them or even knowledge of them are uh, passed along to dispersed uh, groups. So it's a classic uh, argument that you know, really you have interest groups that are highly powerful, highly dug in and getting – and their organization is paid for and there's an incentive to do it because of the, the nature of the benefits. So in, you could say – see it in a, in a more colloquial sense as corruption but it's bad policy. It's bad policy any way you go at it. Now – so that's still true. That was, that was an argument known in 1986. What is also true is that 1986 did not get to the largest and most popular and somewhat broad-based one uh, tax preferences including the uh, mortgage deduction which uh, is – you know means a lot of people uh, uh, itemize. Uh, it gives you a, a break for your uh, mortgage interest and you have to recall, remember that the real estate. Well, this is something that's actually not widely known. When you ask what is the largest and in, uh, industry here in Washington, the largest interest group, um, you might think it's a number of different things, maybe pharmaceuticals or something. It's actually real estate, and uh, there there is a concern there about preserving. I think that this those kinds of tax issues. Uh, the um, other thing. Uh, beyond the tax deduction is the deduction for state and local taxes, which means if you're in a high-tax state like New York or Illinois or California, and California has a 14 percent income tax rate, you get to deduct those taxes against your uh, a national uh, tax burden. So in a, in a sense, particularly from a libertarian point of view, you're really uh, – the, the tax preferences are supporting more spending than would otherwise exist. Uh, in those states because the, the states would have to be competitive. If they wanted those kinds of tax rates, they would not be able to sustain them, I don't think. Uh, basically, uh, the state and local tax deduction lowers taxes overall uh, in those states and on, on the surface and probably in general, it means that uh, their spending would be less since they often have a, a requirement to balance their budget. So, Mayors, governors, those kinds of people, highly concentrated, relatively small number of people uh, are going to be wildly supportive of, uh, the, of that kind of preference. And in fact, they were in 1986 and we didn't get anywhere close to uh, getting rid of either of those deductions. So that's the same and it looks – so far it doesn't look good. There, um, I think – I would think the big difference here and – the one – the big difference is 
we're going in now and the groups that support the, the current status quo, um, they are very aware of what happened and they are very much on their uh, attention. They're really ready to go, ready to fight this out. Uh, that was somewhat true perhaps in 86, but things changed really quickly, as I said, mostly with Packwood. Uh, but, you know, it does look like it's going, you're going to have to have something like that to get something serious through. The other thing is I think the questions out there is President Trump has committed, as interested and as skillful as Ronald Reagan was in 1986 in bringing this about. Uh, and can he work with, in some measure, members of the Democratic Party to get this through? Can he recruit some of those? Because uh, it's probably still true that many Democrats think uh, these preferences could go and would like to see them. If you're talking about interest groups, uh, there have to be some. Well, I th one thing I would say is there's going to be also people uh, from a libertarian or other pers conservative perspective who are going to be against this. And what they're going to say is it's going to increase people's taxes. And it is true and it is true that the, the taxes in 1986, as I said, were raised by 125 million. But other taxes were lowered. These things tend to be uh, more or less revenue neutral. Um, so you can't focus on the, those specific things and then hope that maybe you could get all the taxes down, which would be better, but you can't really hope that in this uh, context of tax reform. So I think it's – instead of thinking of it that way as a tax increase for some people, I would think of it as a rolling back of the state. Once you get rid of the preferences, you also get rid of this attempt to manage the economy because that's what it is. It's an attempt to have a political – uh, direction of the economy through tax cutting rather than spending because tax cutting is easier political, politically and more attractive. So if we think of it as a tax increase, we make it harder because – and prevent ourselves, I think, actually from a good result, which is reducing the size of the state and its scope. John Samples is author of The Struggle to Limit Government. He's also a Cato Institute vice president. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.